0: If you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, we're not beginning a new series this morning. The women have been looking at this epistle over the summer, and I'm going to be preaching some topical sermons over the next few weeks as we prepare for uh, the beginning of fall. And so we're going to be in First Thessalonians 1 this morning. With the scriptures open before us, let's hear the word of God. Please take heed how you hear. And I'm going to be reading this morning from the New American Standard. I apologize for that. I, I, I memorized this chapter in that version, and I can I can it's hard to read it in any other version, having imprinted those words upon my mind. But this is the word of God from First Thessalonians chapter one. Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and a true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, the theme of this chapter is confidence in the electing love of God. Paul says to these Christians, knowing, brethren, beloved by God His Choice of you. And I was wrestling this week with how best to introduce the sermon. And I walked past uh, Paul Rogers' office, our new director of student and family life, and he hurled in my direction a money clip full of $100 bills. I will hasten to say that's not a normal experience for me as I walk past the staff offices of Christ Covenant Church. But if the staff want to begin a new tradition, I'm all ears. So, the, the, the money, the bill clip is hurtling through the air. Paul says with a wry smile, don't say I don't ever give you anything. I caught it, never want to drop money, caught it, and the moment though it touched my hand, my heart began to sink. I felt it and thought, it doesn't quite feel right. It didn't have that linen feel of legal tender. And then I looked down and examined the bills a little more closely, and the color wasn't quite right. It was good, but not quite right. And then on further examination, all of the serial numbers were the same. These were photocopied hundred-dollar bills. I also hasten to add that Paul is not the one photocopying them. He's not using our photocopier as a money-laundering uh, business here. We do pay him for his labors. He actually found the bills under his office window back in Savannah. That's his story at least, and we're going with it this morning. Um, but the point is, these were not legal tender. They weren't the real deal. They weren't the genuine article. But I find myself wondering, you know, I wonder, could you pass them off? You probably couldn't pass them off in a Wells Fargo bank. But if you went to the right 7-Eleven at the right time, and with the right sales assistant, maybe under pressure, having a bad day, you might just be able to pass them off as legal tender. Or you might get arrested. I didn't try. But the thing is, they're not real. And as Paul writes to these Thessalonians, he wants to assure them that they are what these bills were not. They are the real deal, knowing, brethren, beloved by God His choice of you. Now, these Christians are newborn Christians. You remember Paul? You can read in Acts 17 later, Paul has been on a second missionary journey. He's passed from Philippi, down through Thessalonica, and he'll end up in Berea in a second, and that may be where he wrote this letter. It's one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. Probably dates back to A.D. 49, maybe A.D. 50. Hard to be precisely sure. But you remember when he gets to Thessalonica, he uh, he ministers for three successive Lord's Days, three successive Sabbaths in the Jewish synagogues. He's probably there two and a half weeks maybe, and he has some success there, but he has lots of success among the Gentiles. And the Jews in Thessalonica are jealous, and they stir up a hornet's nest of opposition. They basically say that these new Christians' faith in Christ jeopardizes their allegiance to Rome. Thessalonica was a very key city. They had a close relationship with Rome. The people of Thessalonica backed Octavius and Antony in their rebellion against Julius Caesar, and as a reward, they were granted the freedom of the city, which gave them many privileges, and they were always very grateful to their Roman overlords. And the Jews were basically saying, these Christians are confessing Jesus as Lord, and that prevents them and, in fact, amounts to a repudiation of the city's confession that Caesar is Lord. So, these Christians have been born into a war zone with the Jews on one side and the Roman authorities on the other, and they're newborn Christians. As is commonly the case, when things go wrong in our life, we can wonder and fear, does God love me? And to make matters worse, Paul, their new pastor, has just fled the town, and they're left wondering, does God Paul loves us. And two of the reasons why Paul writes this letter is to assure these people that God does indeed love them and that He also loves them with all of His heart. And so, he says, knowing, brethren, beloved by God His choice of you. That's an astounding statement. Paul is reaching back through space and time to be, before the beginning of everything that ever had a beginning had its beginning, he 's reaching back to that moment in the eternal counsels of God when God set his electing love, His choice, on certain sinners. No time to uh, go into a full defense of that right now, but it 's all over paul 's writings. it 's all over the teachings of Jesus. You remember how Paul says to the Ephesians, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and blameless before Him in love. So, Paul's reaching back to that moment, and with a holy arrogance, he's saying, I know that you are beloved of God. I know that God has chosen you, That's a wonderful comfort. Many Christians struggle with that. Some of you struggle with that. In fact, Christians in every church on the planet struggle with that. How will I know if He really loves me? How how, Can I be sure that I'm elect? And sometimes the doctrine of election can make that even worse because we can wonder to ourselves, well, if I'm not chosen by God for salvation, I can't be saved. There's nothing I can do to make to change that state of affairs. And that's a wrong application of the doctrine of election, but it doesn't stop the devil using it. And he often hounds the consciences of God's people to that end. I wonder, is he hounding your conscience to that end? Are you confident that you're chosen by God? Are you confident that you're the real deal, that you're the genuine article? How might you know? Well, Paul gives us at least four reasons here as to why and how he came to that conviction, and he comes to that conviction with these people who have just been saved for two and a half weeks. So it's something you can be sure of at the very beginning of your Christian faith, and so I want you to listen as we work through the passage. How can you know that you're the real deal? Well, Paul says. First of all, he says, "I know that you're the real deal because of the way you live out your faith, because of the way." you live out your faith. And you'll see that there in verse 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, right? And so, Paul says, I see in your life this trinity of Christian virtue, Faith, love, and hope. And these virtues aren't just pie-in-the-sky ideas or ideals. These are the acting, activating, energizing principles of these people's lives. So, work of faith. It's a labor of love. It's a steadfastness of hope. What is Faith. The writer of the Hebrews says, without faith, faith, it is impossible to please God. He that comes to God must believe that He is, He's there, and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. Faith is the ability, you might say, it's a way of looking at life from the perspective of God, of factoring God into all of your thinking. As you look at life, you look at yourself Faith is the capacity to take what God says in His Word, to believe it, and then to transform the way you see everything, principally yourself, when God says you're a sinner, a lost sinner, and you need to be saved. Faith believes that and looks to the Savior and rests on Him. And so, as these Christians here— are believers in Jesus, what strikes Paul is that that changes the way they work. It changes the way they live. The things they do, the things they don't do, the jobs they do, the jobs they leave undone, are all affected by the fact that they see life through the lens of faith. They're believers. that the way you see life? Are you a person who sees life and factors God into your thinking how you understand, how you interpret the events of life? Do you do that from the posture of faith? Then he goes on, a labor of love. If faith is a way of looking at life, love is a way of looking at people. As we've said before, um, our relationship with God profoundly affects the way we view people. Without faith, we tend to look at people from a very selfish perspective— we tend to sort people out into two perspectives. Are they useful to me, or are they useless? Can I use them for my agenda? That tends to be the way we view people if we don't see them through the lens of God. We we, we evaluate them. We put a value on them by how much benefit, how much blessing, how much pleasure, how much use are they to me, right? But From a Christian perspective, though, we look at people through the lens of faith, and we don't evaluate them by our own mind. We see them through the eyes of God, and their value comes from the fact they're made in God's image. And in the church, we are the brotherhood who have been qualified by the Father to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of the Son of His love, and that changes everything because God loves you. We love one another, and these Christians are engaged in the labor of love. It's a word for hard work. Sometimes it is hard work loving some of you, and sometimes it's hard work loving me. And we have to kind of. We, but we we do love one another sincerely, because we, we we look at one another through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of God, and we love one another. And Paul sees that here in this church. And also, hope, the steadfastness of hope. If faith is a way of looking at life and and love is a way of looking at people, hope is a way of looking to the future. And in particular, it's a way of dealing with the uncertainty of the present by looking through that and past that and laying hold of the certainty of God's future glory. And it puts iron, steel, titanium in a man's backbone when he has hope grounded upon God's Word, and he's able to stand fast in the face of present uncertainty because he keeps his eyes fixed on the certain promises of God in the gospel and so these christians as they live out their life the work of faith labor of love steadfastness of hope it shows paul that the gospel isn't just part of their life like a key ring you've got a key ring and you might have lots of different keys on your key ring although my mechanic tells me it's really bad for your car's ignition to have all that weight pulling on the key but nonetheless you've all these keys on your key ring and there's big keys and small keys important keys and not-so-important keys. Keys you've even forgotten, what do they even do? But you don't take them off because you might need it one day. And so you have all these keys. And, and, and for some people, the Christian faith can be like that. It's a key on the key ring of their life. But for these people, the gospel isn't like that. It's not a key on the key ring of their life. The gospel for these people is the key ring that holds all of the keys of their life together. And Paul sees that and says, I know you're the real deal. Now, the key thing here, pun intended, kind of, um, is this faith, this love, and this hope aren't abstract things. They're actually deeply personal things. They're rooted in Jesus Christ. Your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these three things faith, love, hope are all connected to Jesus. That's vital. Because if you don't do that, you would be left with faith mixed with unbelief, lots of it, and love mixed with much indifference and even hatred, and hope mixed with much despair. And the devil will come along to you and go, look at your faith. And you think, okay, look at my faith. He goes, is that faith really worth anything? And you look at it and think, hmm. And he kind of puts his grubby finger in and kind of pokes around and goes, look at all that unbelief that's no faith at all. That faith won't take you to heaven, and you go, oh, maybe not. And then let's look at your love, and you think, you love the people who love you, but these kind of, you know, the kind of smelly and different people that are difficult. You don't love them very much. That's true. And then you kind of pokes around, and you think, this love isn't very impressive. And then you go to your hope, and you think, well, you know, you have some hope, but there are some days you have to stop yourself going to your GP and asking for enough Xanax to kill a small Shetland pony. You haven't got much hope. You're more discouraged, depressed, and anxious. You're, really, you're not a Christian. And if, you, and if you let the devil do that, you'll be kind of in despair in no time. But the key thing is, faith, love, and hope don't just float in the air. They're connected to Jesus. It's faith in Christ. It's love because we've been mastered by the love of Christ. It's, it's hope because we're convinced of the faithfulness and certainty of Christ. And that changes everything. Faith by itself is nothing, but faith in Christ is everything. And so you don't look at your faith. that's not where you find confidence of your election. You send your faith on a journey to look at Jesus, and you'll find your confidence swelling and your assurance growing. you think I can trust him. I can't trust myself. I can't trust my faith. I can't trust my hope, I can't trust my love, but I can trust my Savior. And from that trust, we live out our lives. And Paul sees that here, and it gives him good confidence. Secondly, Paul says, I know you're, you're right with God. I know you're elect. I know you're beloved of God, not just because of the way you live out your faith, but because of the way you respond to the gospel. Paul says, verse 4 and 5, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power— and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Right? The gospel is a message with words. You'll sometimes hear people say, preach the gospel, use words, if necessary. That's the daftest thing in all the world. That's like saying, make a sandwich, use bread, if necessary. Well, You're going to have a lot of mayonnaise on your fingers if you've no bread to hold it all together, right? The gospel is a message made up of words, a message from God about God to men. Words to be heard, words to be understood, words to be received, words to be believed, words to be cherished, words to be kept, words to hold on to. They are necessary. We use them. But the gospel— needs more than words to change the hearts and minds of men and women and boys and girls. It's got to come with power. It's got to come with full conviction. It's got to lay hold of us if we are ever to lay hold of it. And Paul says that's exactly what happened in Thessalonica. Our word, the gospel, did not come in word only, but also in power— Now, Paul explains why that word came with power, and there are two reasons. The first you might expect, and the second might surprise you. The first reason, Paul says, the gospel came with power because of the lightning of heaven, the lightning of God's Spirit. As I preach, Paul says, God came down and moved and laid hold of people. I was speaking, but I wasn't the only one speaking, Paul said. There was a sense in the congregation that God was with me and Christ was preaching through me by the Spirit of God, the power of God, the the power of God's Spirit, the lightning of heaven. But there's a second reason why the gospel came with power, not just the power of God's Spirit, but also the power of Paul's example. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. That Paul's life matched up to his message, and the people weren't left saying, we can't hear what you say, your life is speaking too loudly. It was evident to Paul that Paul's hearers that Paul wasn't in it for himself. He was in it for them, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In the next chapter, he speaks about how he loved them as a mother and taught them as a father. And both reasons are important, lest we undo with our lives what we're trying to do with our lips. The gospel came with power, has the gospel ever had that effect upon you? It can rise and fall. There's the saying in Northern Ireland, like water off a duck's back, right? Water flows off a duck's back, and the back, the duck deep down is left entirely unwet, dry, unchanged. And the gospel can be like that with all of us sometimes. We can hear the gospel preached, and it doesn't affect us. But has the gospel ever affected you? Has it ever gripped you? Do you find that when Kyle walks you through the, the assurance of pardon, when you hear the gospel preached and read and, you, and the prayers of the people as the gospel comes to you, does it warm the embers of your heart? Do they glow with a heavenly glory? Do you find your soul being gripped by these realities, or are you left entirely unmoved and unchanged? Paul says, I'm conscious that you're elect, you're chosen of God, because of the way um, the way you live out your faith, but also the way you respond to the gospel. Then thirdly, Paul says, I'm conscious that you are the true children of God because of the way you face difficulty. He says in verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. Paul says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, that sounds amazing. Why would Paul mention himself in the same sentence as he mentions Christ? You imitated us and the Lord. And what he's saying is he's not boasting of himself. He's just making the observation that Thomas Watson has made, and you've heard before, God has one Son without sin, but He has no sons without suffering. And so, you shouldn't be shocked, young Christians, whenever you put your faith in Jesus and all hell breaks loose. Remember taking Hannah to see Facing Giants, um, one of those kind of first Christian movies that made it under the general release. And you remember the story of the football team and the football coach and they're doing really badly, and then the coach turns to Jesus, and suddenly the season turns around, and he ends up winning, I don't know, the national championship, and it's like, oh, wonderful, and everyone's crying, and it's really emotional, and we leave the cinema, and Hannah says to me, but that's not the way it works. Sometimes when you trust in Jesus, everything goes from bad to worse. And I said, exactly, and worse still. He like, just keeps on, you know, because all hell breaks loose, and, and so often the, the health and wealth gospel— denies that, and they can leave people unprepared for what happens when they put their faith in Jesus and all hell breaks loose. Like Naboth, we'll hear that tonight in tonight's message. Naboth, good man, refuses a sweet real estate deal because he fears God. And Jezebel has him liquidated. it. Then the Holy Spirit sends Elijah to rebuke Ahab. Now, if I, was, if I was Naboth, I'd been thinking 15, 20 minutes earlier would have been really good. You know, when they were picking up the stones to kill me, that would have been a great time for Elijah to make his grand appearance. But God sits there and does nothing as Naboth is butchered. And that's often the way it is with God's children in this world. It's difficult, and it requires faith to Uh, understand and to embrace. And Paul says here, these people, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much tribulation. Paul says, when I came to you, I was still black and blue from the beatings I received in in Philippi. You remember there in chapter 2, if you turn over a second, Paul says, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after… We had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. As you know, you saw us black and blue. We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts." And Paul says, you followed us as we followed the Lord. Now, here's the key thing. Having received the Word with much tribulation, in much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the Word. That's very important. You remember whenever Paul leaves Thessalonica and he goes to Berea, We're told that the men of Berea were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They received the word and they examined the scriptures. They listened to God's servants, knowing they were God's servants, and they received the word and they went to the scriptures. That's vital. I've met many Christians in my ministry, not here, I'm glad to say, but in other places who rejected the Word and then went to the Bible to find reasons to justify their rejection. So, a sermon on Remember Lot's wife. And I remember one particular lady, and she only ever had words, only had, had an ear for words of God's love and God's grace and God's, and God's um, mercy. And so, she, that sermon, Remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife's leaving Sodom. She looks back, and God strikes her dead. And she says, you're a false prophet. Jesus says, Roman, uh, Paul says, Romans 6, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. She took that one word and used it to erase all of the rest of the Bible that speaks words of warning. She rejected the Word, and she went to the Bible to, to justify her rejection. That's never safe. The Jews in Berea received the Word and examined the Scriptures. And in the Christians in Thessalonica, the same thing— 1 Timothy 2.13, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, For we constantly thank God that when you receive the word which you heard from us, you received it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in your hearts who believe. Right? They received it. And he said, You received the word in much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And the two go together. You receive the Word despite the tribulation, and the Holy Spirit comes. He always works by and with the Word, and He stirs up joy in your hearts. And so, whenever you're struggling and suffering, and someone comes alongside you—and, of course, it's always better to listen first before we speak—but there comes a time when we have to speak. And your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife says, you know, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials. And if you don't receive that word, you'll never rejoice. If you reject that word, no, no, my, my Bible says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And your friend says, yes, sometimes they follow you through the valley of the shadow of death. But if you don't receive the Word, you'll never know the joy of the Spirit. The two go together like water and wet. And Paul looks at these people, and it astounds him and assures him one of the clearest signs of spiritual life in the soul of a man or woman or a boy or a girl is the ability to go from hardship to Scripture to joy. Remember the the, the, the seeds thrown on the stony ground. It had no deep root, and when trials came because of the Word, they wither and die. But true spiritual life is able to suck blessing out of bitterness. It goes from hardship to the Scriptures and ends up with joy, joy of the Holy Spirit. And I see that in so many of you. There are so many of you who are full of joy, and despite triumph. And it's a fight. You've got to fight your way to it. But you, you do fight. You fight your way to joy. And It amazes me to see some of you, the, the brightness in your eyes, despite though your outer man is perishing and feels like it's perishing and you feel miserable and sick, and yet there's a, there's a brightness in your eyes, a joy in your heart that could only come from God. Through faith in the scriptures and the presence of his spirit. And when Paul sees that, he sees a, an acid test, a sign of life. Now of course we can all be wars at times. I'm from Northern Ireland, and our national sport is complaining. We see our national anthem is every rose has its thorn. Not quite, but it should be. Because we always go from the thorn and go to the rose, but look at the thorns. That's that's our posture. That's my nature as an Irishman. But supernature pulls me away from that eor Spirit and pulls me up to see the Word of God and to feel the Spirit of God and to trust the person of my Father. And when, when, when we do that, there's joy, but there's also a sign of true abiding spiritual life. And then, lastly, Paul says, the way you deal with sin is a powerful sign of life. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, verse 8, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we receive from you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul says, everywhere I go, I'm hearing stories from people of how you received these wandering preachers who were getting beaten up in every city, and you still received them. And this Steve Lawson says, the problem with preachers nowadays is that nobody wants to kill us anymore. And people wanted to kill Paul, and these people still received him. That was amazing. But also what was amazing was how they turned to God from idols, how they dealt decisively with their sin. And this is one of those beautiful passages that is a chair text for Repentance. How you turned to God from idols. Notice in our bodies it's very difficult, it's actually impossible to turn to somebody else. I can't turn to Eric without turning from Kyle. We turn to, and because of that, we turn from. And notice what comes first, how you turned to God from idols. There's a lesson there. So often in my Christian life, I suspect so often in your Christian life, we're struggling with a particular sin, and we're doing our best to repent from it. Trying to turn. I want to turn from it. I want to turn from it. You're trying to kind of… and you're being, I want to turn from it. No, no. Repentance doesn't begin by turning from. Repentance begins when you turn to. You conquer the pleasures of sin by turning to the Father, and we turn to God, the glories of God, His person, His beauty, His majesty, His grace, pull us away from our sins. You'll never turn from unless you first turn to a hugely important spiritual lesson. And notice, in Tim Chester, in his book, You Can Change, which is a wonderful book on kind of unpacking mortification of sin, putting sin to death, he says, Repentance is a lifelong, continuous activity of turning back to God from God dethroning desires. And repentance is not just turning from sinful behavior but turning from the idols and desires that cause sinful behavior. That's profound. We're not just turning from individual sins—we do that, don't get me wrong—but we're turning from our idols, which are the the root of all of our sins— So, think of the the, the oak tree outside the staff house, right? It's got a trunk, one trunk, and that trunk divides into branches, and those branches divide, I don't know, into branchlets, and then the branchlets—I'm not an arboreist—but they divide into twigs, and the twigs become leaves, right? And in the illustration, the leaves are your words and your deeds, the branches, or the twigs, or your thoughts, your branches, or your desires, your affections, your emotions, and they all connect back in a kind of complicated nexus into one big trunk. And in my experience, that's the way it is with most people. Sometimes you have two or three trunks, but we're not crepe myrtles. We don't have like ten trunks or six trunks. There's generally one or two main trunks that hold the whole tree up. And the trunks in my illustration are the idols— the desires, the hopes, the plans that control everything, the reason behind the season of everything we think, say, and do. And for most people, there's like one or two huge, motivating drives, idolatrous drives, if you like, that pull our souls away from God. And the key is to figure out what they are. I remember hearing recently— it was last year, of a man, doesn't live in Greensboro, but is a man, and he has a, a ministry to those who are enslaved to sexual sin, and he has that ministry because he once was himself. He was involved in pornography and prostitution and all kinds of things. It destroyed his marriage, and for years he was in the wilderness, and then he was converted, or came back to Christ, um, and eventually decades later had this ministry to um, men who struggled And were enslaved to that area. And he said what came to his when he was converted, what he saw was his moment of clarity, was that there was one sin that really explained not just his pornography and prostitution, but there was one sin that really explained all of his sins. And I think it was like respect for him. He didn't really respect himself. How could he? He didn't feel his wife respected him, his children didn't respect him. He was was always cast off and cast out, and he had this deep hunger to be loved and accepted and respected, and that left him wide open to the sin, right? But it wasn't just there. It was in every area of his life. The way he led and worked or didn't lead, um, the way he used his time, it was all based around this idol of respect. Now, it mightn't be that way for you. It might be um, the fear of rejection, the fear of man— You've been rejected in the past. It's very painful. The thought of being cast out is a terrible thing. And so you you, you live your whole life trying to curry favor with men, trying to be accepted, trying to get their smile and avoid their frowns. It might be pleasure and convenience— it might be security. It might be controlling your life and, and, and building security for yourself on the basis of control. There's a thousand different, well, maybe not a thousand, there's probably a, a small number of key, main, motivating, idolatrous desires that pull our soul away from God. What is it for you? Because if you don't know that, you'll never really be able to conquer your sins. You'll be beating. The leaves off the tree, which is one way to do it. You might cut the odd twig or the odd branch, but you'll never get back to the root of the thing. And Paul says these people were getting to the root of the thing, they were turning to God from idols. And it's not just from sin and the shame of sin and the guilt of sin, but they're being attracted to God, his goodness, his beauty, his his glory. It's important to realize that. Because true repentance always has those two elements turning from sin, turning to God. And it's not there's a there's a self righteous photocopy, not photocopy, um, forgery of repentance. And I, stuck, I stumbled across it this week when I was reading Tim Keller's wonderful little book in prayer, and he's speaking about a kind of repentance that's far too common in the church, and frankly, actually, far too common in my own. soul. I, can, I find myself falling into this trap. I wonder, do you do too? He says… true repentance is always motivated by the gospel of free grace. The gospel of free grace that we are saved and accepted through Christ apart from any of our good works or efforts changes the nature of repentance. When we forget the freeness of grace, the purpose of our repentance becomes the appeasement of God. When we aren't sure that God loves us in Christ, then confession and repentance become a way of keeping on God's good side, with expressions of sorrow that we hope impress Him and with our sincerity and move Him to take pity on us. If that is what repentance becomes, it is self-righteous and will be bitter all the way down to the bottom. It will lead only to a forced compliance of the will, not a change of view, motivation, and heart. Luther, he says, denounced this kind of legalistic repentance as self-righteous because it is essentially an attempt to atone for our own sin. It can become a kind of self-flagellation, even a self-crucifixion, through which we try to convince God and ourselves that we are so truly unhappy and regretful that we deserve to be forgiven." And that's no repentance at all. Ever do that? You beat yourself up. And you, oh, woe is me. You self-flagellate. And you're really sending yourself to the cross to try and impress God. Lord, I'm so sorry, Lord. I've sinned again and again and again. But look at my sorrow. I feel so sorry now. I deserve to be forgiven. And that's, that's not true repentance. And it won't lead to life. It leads to death. It doesn't lead to God. It leads to self. And it will lead to bitterness, not sweetness of spirit you'll never truly know the joy of a little boy running home from school for the holidays, which is the sinner's heart, and he turned from his sin to God, not because he, he's trying to earn the favor of God and the grace of God, but because he's seen the grace of God epiphanied in Christ Jesus, as Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And it's the grace of God in Christ that teaches us, instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. And Dr. Ferguson recently was saying this beautiful statement about grace. There's a reason why people take the grace of God And turn it into liberty to sin. It's because they take the grace of God and they disconnect it from the person of Jesus. That always leads to a godless style of living because grace is just God going soft on sin then. But when you see the grace of God as connected to Jesus and you see Christ hanging on the cross dying in my place for my sins under the wrath and curse of the Father. And you realize that's what my sin did to Him. It removes any need for me to try and earn the grace of God by showing God how sorrowful I am. The grace of God's already been given freely and completely and eternally in Christ. That's why He's on the cross. And it's turning to Him and seeing the loveliness of him and the ugliness of what my sin did to him, that's what begins to get into the heart and soul of true repentance. And it leads to sweetness, and it leads to service, and it leads to hope and expectation. As Paul says, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. I want to ask you this morning as we close this sermon, how are you repenting? Is your repentance drawn, motivated by the sweetness of God, His love, His kindness, His mercy? Or is your repentance really one big effort of doing penance and showing God how sorry you are with all of your our fathers and all of your religious devotions and all of your fasting and praying, trying to show God, I really mean it this time. I'm really sorry, O God. I deserve to be forgiven. We would never say that, of course. but We can find ourselves thinking that when we disconnect the grace of God from the Son of God and start thinking of it as something we must earn by our repentance, when in reality it's something we receive by turning to and turning from, but turning to Jesus, in all of His fullness, coming to Him in all of our emptiness and receiving in Him and from Him what we could never hope to find anywhere else. That's true repentance. And Paul saw it in these newborn Christians. And he said, I know you've been beloved of God and you've been chosen by God. And you know, I see that in you, my people. I see that sweetness of Jesus. I see the smile in your face, the light in your eyes as you leave the church and you've tasted and seen that God is good and sin is bitter. And though we find ourselves going back to it. The motivating drive and force in your souls is grace. And it's the power of God. Unto to salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God and our Father, we come this morning in the name of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask You, Father, to have mercy. Draw our hearts to You, Lord Jesus. Open our eyes to see the brightness and the beauty of your face. Incline our hearts away from sin in every bypath meadow and enlarge our heart we might run to Jesus and be free from our sins and be free for our Savior's service. And give us eyes to wait with expectation. For soon Christ shall come to rescue us from this world, to rescue us from your wrath, and to bring us safely home to heaven. In Christ we pray. Amen.